Hey there, barrel chasing business lovers. I am Jay Green, your host, as always, of the Barrels and Business podcast. In the next hour, it is my job to bring you some tangible tips on how you can grow and scale your business, some amazing life hacks, how you can step up as a business owner, and obviously some interesting and funny stories about surfing, traveling the globe, and living the lifestyle of a surfer. I am so excited, and I gotta admit, a little trepidatious about this uh, interview because I am bringing on someone who has been a really, really big influence in my life. So many of you have known me for the last few years. I've been banging on about this thing called WildFit and how it changed my life. The, the dietary changes that I made that I think makes me look 10 years younger than what I looked 10 years ago. I am ailment-free. My uh, arthritis in my fingers from breaking and while playing football, all that shit is gone. And I can only attribute it to a change in the way that I eat and the founder of WildFit. But... That's probably not where the story starts with him. Eric Edmeads is a world-class speaker who I met in Jamaica when I first started my speaking journey. I was a scared, timid little girl at that stage. He made me cry. He made me stand up in front of a crowd and scream and try and break free of the shit that was holding me back and stopping my voice from coming through. I knew that I wanted to travel the globe and work with Mind Valley sharing my voice and helping awaken humanity. I knew I wanted to do a podcast. I knew I wanted to do all these things. I had them burning inside. I just couldn't seem to step onto the stage and find my voice. And I don't know if Eric knows this, but I'm going to choke up. But it is definitely Eric that took me along that journey. The stages go a little bit further than that and a great deal of confidence that he gave me by allowing me to present to his very own business group and bring my voice to them. So Eric, if I can bring you on camera, I want to say thank you so much for impacting my life. I don't know if you know all that stuff over the last four years, um, but just for your lifestyle, like I absolutely look up to the history you have, the way that you've changed. You're like a chameleon. Like from 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 film studios in Hollywood to chasing uh, wildebeest across the <laughs> across the uh, Masai. Is it the actual Masai Mara that you go to with the guys? Where I've been there. I go. I go all over Africa. So yeah, all over. And I um, actually have chased wildebeest from horseback. Yes, I was like for your natural, your like photography, everything about you. You you're one of these people that seems to be able to lend your hand at anything you do. And one of the questions we had from the tribe was actually about your resilience piece and, you know, how do you change, change focus, stick with it and kind of face all odds in terms of, okay, I've done this, but wow, how does that even connect to that? And where did that go to there? And I just absolutely adore that about you because I think that is the true spirit of an entrepreneur, but also as a human, not being stuck in a box. What did I leave out? Like, that's not my, it's not your formal bio. It's not the link. It's certainly not the LinkedIn bio we wrote, we wrote for you. <laughs> you know, Jade, first of all, I no, I didn't know a lot of those things. I really appreciate hearing them. I'm, I, I live a very blessed life where pretty much every day people write to me and say things like that to me on Instagram. And I actually manage my own Instagram. So I, so I see them and, and, uh, 
many of my days actually start with tears when I see stuff like this. It's I, I'm I'm grateful that I get to do uh, this stuff in the world. Uh, in terms of like, what what have you left out? I don't know. Let's find out together as we go through this uh, process. There, 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 there. I think there's going to be some fun adventures to talk about and some good distinctions to draw for people. Yeah, amazing. So let me start with because we we jump straight into the call. I don't even know where you are in the world at the moment. I am home in the Dominican Republic, where I have spent the majority of the time. I've, been, I've kind of split my time between the Dominican Republic and Estonia this year. Oh, have you? Amazing. Yeah, I felt I felt like I was missing out a little bit because we had planned to do um, come and do Speaker Nation and to do Business Freedom in Estonia in the last two years. Uh, we, we planned to do a lot of things over in Europe the last two years that didn't happen. Um, so let's start with your your kite surfing background, your adventures. I've, you've got some amazing pictures of you uh, flying high. Do you, with where your home is right now, do you get to get in the water much? Do you know, I, I live on Kite Beach. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so it's actually called Kite Beach. And, and, and so as a consequence, it's about the closest representation you can have to ski in, ski out resorts. Like, you know how, like, basically, I walk out the back door, the ocean is right there. There are you know, there are kids around that'll help you set up your kite if you're, if you're feeling a bit lazy that day and off you go in the water. I, I admit that um, since the lockdown, I haven't kited nearly as much um, as, I, as I traditionally do. But this summer, I plan to get like right back in. I'm, I'm getting a new kite and I'm getting ready. And, I'm, I'm very, and the wind really starts, start, like I'm, I'm headed out to Europe for a few weeks shortly. And then when I get back, the wind will be full speed ahead and it's going to be a, a season of kite. Amazing. So tell me your most horrific kite experience because i've had some friends that yeah it's it it went it went bad <laughs> you know um kiting looks a lot scarier and dangerous than it really is it has the potential to be pretty bad um but you know um like, i'll give you a couple there, there was one when i first started kiting and and i um and and the waves here were so big i wasn't on kite beach i was on the main beach and the waves they were so big it was hard to even get through the shore break and um, so I finally managed to get through the shore break, get up on my board and head out. And I wanted to head out to the reef break, but the waves, they were so big. And even with my kite at full speed, it was like, I'd take a run at the wave and I wouldn't be able to get over it before it was gonna break on me. So I'd have to chicken out and do a U-turn and pull away. And then finally, finally I did it. I got the timing right. I went for the run, I'm headed over. The wave started the break. I leapt off the other side of it and I'm flying through the air. And that's when I realized that the waves that I've been trying to get over are the reverb waves. They're, they're, they're the shock waves. They're not the actual waves. Like I couldn't even see them. Now that I'm flying through the air on the other side, I realized that there are waves that I don't even know how big they were, but I can tell you that as I landed on the water and I looked at the wave coming at me, my biggest fear was the wave was going to hit my kite. Now think about that. My kite is at the end of 30 some odd feet of lines. And that's how big the wave looked to me. And, uh, and so I panicked and I wiped out and I crashed off the board and now the wave's about to crash in on me. And, and, and I, I grab the kite and I put it right into the window and I power it fully and pull myself up the face of the wave. And so as the wave is about to crest over me, I split out the other side of it, go shooting through the air, I, I, you know, into the valley of the next set of waves. But the problem is this just keeps happening. Like I can't escape from these huge waves. And then uh, luckily kite, kiteboarding is such a, a collaborative sport. A more experienced kiter grabbed my boards, you know, came sliding over, slid it to me with like a pro. I managed to get my feet in and boom, kite my way out of there. And uh, that's probably the like 
the most scared I've ever been out there kiting. And, and, uh, but at the same time, I, I was also, I'd, I'd been kiting for three months or something at that point. I probably shouldn't have been out there. <laughs> no, probably not. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine what happens if your kite goes down in, in big swell. Like you've, you've then got a, a piece of material attached to your stomach that, is there a quick yeah, release? Yeah, you have to be a little, I mean, you know, kites are so much safer now than they than they were when they first started. There's all kinds of release systems and extra release systems and, and whatever. So if, if your kite goes down, it's actually really easy to pop it back up again. I, I, okay, now I'm talking now about inflated kites. Foil kites, I don't have so much experience with, but it's not so tough to pull, pull the kite back up again. Now, if the kite does get caught in the surf, whether it's a reef break or short, I don't really care. You're, you do not want to let that kite fill up with water and pull you shooting through the water. First of all, it'll likely break your kite. And secondly, it may pull you underwater while you're going through all that. So that's, if you feel like your kite's going to get sucked into the surf, you just pop your release and boom, off it goes. And that just releases the one set of lines. So the kite no longer has torque. It no longer has any pull. And so the waves can't pull in. Obviously, if it got really bad, you would, un, you would then release the second release and be completely separate from your kite. Yeah. Because all I was thinking of 30 foot of water coming down inside of a big catchment, pulling you, dragging you. It's like, sounds horrific to me. <laughs> no, you know, it's, it's, it's truly one of the greatest sports in the world. And what's great about it is that it looks like an extreme sport and it kind of is, except that it's only as extreme as you make it. For example, I mean, I, uh, Richard Branson is, I think, precisely 20 years older than me, and he is still an avid kite boarder. I, you know, I, I've been kiting at Necker, where he kites all the time, and it's like he's he's out there. You know, so it's it's one of those sports that, as you like, look, tennis eventually is going to take out your knees. Kiting, it's actually quite gentle once you're good at it. Yeah, goodness. Now I saw, had a friend that just on this beach here tried to teach himself how to kite board, and not with a real board yet. yet. And not with a real board, like with a surfboard. It was all sorts of, it was just him to a T. Like he was like, always a catastrophe. And I don't know if you, know, you probably can't see, there's a groin just down here. There's a, a rock wall. And he managed to get himself like all torn up one day and just like smack, smack, smack over all of the rocks. And it was just horrific. Um, <laughs> all sorts of broken things. And he'd only just recovered and decided that he'd have another crack at it. And then got dragged up. There's another groin on the other side. <laughs> got that. I'm like, I think you should get some lessons. Actually, that's a nice yeah, thing. You know, like, you know, I think it would be easier to teach your teach yourself how to drive, frankly, um, than it would to uh, teach yourself how to kite. And um, yeah, I know lessons are required as far as, and, and matter of fact, most places won't even won't even rent you a kite if you don't have a, a card that demonstrates that you know how to kite. Oh, really? Because I've, yeah. I've always wondered that because in Bali, you obviously see all of the, the kiteboarding places that you can hire. And I've <laughs> in 18 trips with running all of the uh, iLabs and the accelerators in Bali, I was always like, yep. I don't know if you know the place in Sonora, right near Genius Cafe. I was like, no. okay, I'm going I'm to do it. And I just never got to it. And I think I was just, I don't know what the fear was that ha held me back from doing it. And maybe it was that, I hate sucking at things. And I thought that if I just got one lesson, maybe it wouldn't be enough. And then I never had enough time to- Let me help you out. Here, here's the thing. Um, learning curves have different levels of steepness, right? So the learning curve with windsurfing is very gentle at first. The first lesson, you're standing on the board. 
you know, you can stand on the board on your very first lesson on a calm day with light wind and you can even move a little. With kiteboarding, it'll take you at least four or five days before you're standing on any kind of board. Like it, it, it will take days to get there. But with windsurfing, you will get to this place where it was very gentle, but then after that, anything you wanna do is a massive curve and it'll take you a year to learn how to jump and a year to learn how to do a flip and a year how to, whereas with kiting, once you're up and you're transitioning, the learning curve at that point is incredibly shallow. Every, everything you want to learn how to do is learnable in a week. And, 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 and a lot of that is because is you've got, you know, you've got such high control over the wind compared to windsurfing. Now, have you ever wakeboarded? Only once. Okay. Well, the best way I can describe kiteboarding for somebody who has wakeboarded is that kiteboarding is kind of like wakeboarding, only the boat can fly and you can control it with your mind. Whoa, Jedi magic. <laughs> it's worth doing. Okay. You've, you've convinced me. I've always wanted to do it. And I um, when I went to Hawaii, I stayed with the, this amazing lady, Rachel, who was the very first big wave uh, strap-free kite surfer for Red Bull uh, as, a, as a female. And I was staying at sunset and a massive um, sort of windswell came through and, and it was really windy and her and her partner went out. And he, he was like, just at me and at me to do it while I was there. But I only had two days with him. I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to go out at sunset. No, no, not two days. Truthfully, I, I would say to you that you really need like a week. A mm -hmm. week. And look, I have this one client, a guy, uh, you know, he's a fabulous guy. And he learned how to kiteboard in a single day. But it's worth pointing out that he is, um, that he did, he, like he was a special, literally a special forces soldier. And then like an extreme ultra racing guy doing all, like he was, he's as tough as nails, right? And he yeah. learned how to kite in a single day, but no, most people don't have it in them to do six hours of being beaten up by the wind and waves in one day. Yeah. Most people can get a handle on kiteboarding inside of five days or so, they, you know, ge a general handle. So book a camp is what I'm hearing. Yep. <laughs> so and by the way, I would say that the very best place, I mean, there are probably other great places too, but one of the best places to learn kiteboarding is here in Cabarete. We're like Mecca of kiteboarding. We have pretty much year round wind, but also we have variety of water. There's flat water, there's choppy water, there's mega flat water. And the reason that that's handy is if you learn somewhere that's easy, then you can't kite where it's hard. Yeah. Whereas if you learn here where there's quite heavy chop, you know, like as an example, I lived in Turks and Caicos for a long time and I never learned to kite while I was there. Thank God, frankly, because if you learn to kite there, you know, for two kilometers, you can stand up in the water just up to your chest. So if you come off the board, you stand there, walk back to your board. You don't get good at upwind dragging to go get your board, you know, like all that stuff. Whereas in Cabarete, you can't get away with that. You, you, you have to learn. And once you've learned to kite here, you can pretty much kite anywhere except for one problem. And that is that our water here is warm year round. There's no need of a wetsuit ever. And so if you've learned to kite here and then somebody wants you to go kiting in San Francisco Bay, not gonna happen. No, cold. <laughs> no. Uh, I'm gonna use that as a little segue because that's, where, where else in life do you think it's important to either give it a go to yourself or just take, take the leap and get some lessons, get some coaching, get some advice? Do you know, I, I think that, um, I don't know, you know, I would tend to say that it's always worth getting some level of advice before you start anything familiar or unfamiliar or new, you know, I mean, just like almost anything like, 
it, it, yeah, there's, there's something to, you know, I'm going to jump in and take care of this myself and I'm going to learn this on my own and I'm self-taught and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is, is that the shortcuts afforded you by an expert, the shortcuts afforded you by a coach or teacher are going to make the whole, are going to make progress happen more quickly, which is so much more motivating and more fun. So I, I you know, I, I, I tend to say, if I'm going to start something new at the minimum, I want to talk to an expert and get some advice about what, what I need to know before I go in there. And then of course, the, the more dangerous the thing is, the more advice or more coaching I want to have. So with something like kiteboarding, you know, if you get kiteboarding wrong, it's pretty bad. So best to take lessons. And I took lessons for two full weeks. And then I continued to hire, um, like not a trainer, but like basically you can hire here kind of a kiting babysitter where somebody will stay on the beach and keep an eye on you in the water and yeah. kind of help you. And I, I continued to have a kite guide for probably another month or two after I, I learned how to kite. Um, just, and, and it was little things. Occasionally the kite goes down, the lines get tangled, you're stuck in the water, and now you got somebody who can jump out in the water and help you with all that. And that, that stuff's pretty tough to deal with when you're, when you're just starting out. And, and by the way, isn't that just true of so much, right? Like we, one of the reasons I think we get so trapped into this idea that we should do it all is that we spent 12 years in school getting punished for collaborating and being called a cheater. <laughs> uh, oh, schooling. Okay, give us your give us your thoughts on traditional education, Eric. You know, I, I think if we're very practical, traditional education is just an advanced form of babysitting. There's no question. It does not take 12 years to teach the stuff that they teach over a 12 year span. There's no question about that. My grade three teacher covered the entire year's curriculum in the first six months of the year, and then they fired because that's not effective babysitting. You know, um, and and so I'm I'm. I, I'm not really a big fan. And, and on top of that, let, let's, just, let's just think for a minute. Like when I tell you, if I told you that somebody's day went like this, they, they went to the place, the bell rang, they started to work, the bell rang, they, they then took a break, the bell rang, they went back to work, the bell rang, they took a lunch break, the bell rang, they got back to work, the bell rang, they got to go home. Where are they? They're working in a factory. Industrial. And that's what the school system was designed for us to prepare us for that type of thinking. Sit here, do what you're told, and you listen for the bell. And and you know, there, and there's no you know, creativity is not going to help. You know, you just and and so I'm I'm generally not um, a big fan. And then and then I have another problem. And then this is this is tough to say because I think anybody, honestly, anybody who uh, makes the decision to become a teacher must have a big heart. They must, because frankly, I don't know what it's like in your half of the, you know, on, 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 the, on the other half of the planet, but in our half of the planet, we don't respect teachers very well, at least not economically. I mean, it, it really is deplorable when you think I, I have a, I have a conspiracy theory that I've been spreading out there. And that is that Corona, the, the whole COVID-19 virus was started by a chem lab teacher, a bio lab and a chem lab teacher came together and they said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a pandemic that's going to send all the kids home so parents will finally understand how much we're worth. And now parents are like, I'll pay anything. Take them away. <laughs> but, you know, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, of course, kidding. But the, the, the truth is, I think that um, anybody who wants to devote their life to teaching, that, that, that is pretty as, as close to altruism as I think you can get it. It's a near selfless act, as far as I can tell. The trouble is, is that the way teachers are taught isn't really effective in most cases. And, and here's one of the problems. The paradigm in most educational facilities is that learning is the responsibility of the student. It is the student's responsibility to learn. 
Like, you know, if your grades are bad, then it's your fault. Apply yourself more, blah, blah, blah. And I take a very different approach. And that is that I believe that um, it is the responsibility of the teacher to make the information sticky. It's the responsibility of the teacher to get the information to stay in a practical way so that the student actually is learning. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting students don't have a role to play. I'm just thinking that any educational system that's built on the idea that the teachers and the students take responsibility for the learning process, then we're going to have a much better outcome. And if you ask anybody, they'll tell you everybody had at least one or two teachers that was that way. But most of us had 90% of our teachers that weren't that way. And, and so consequently, I'm not that big a fan of the way most school systems work. I'm going to use that to jump over to how most businesses are run then, because how many businesses around the world still run this? We clock in at nine, we clock out at five, we take lunch here, we wear this uniform, we go through this process. It's the responsibility of the employee to read the, the binder and figure the shit out. What's your what's your take on applying that same thinking to how businesses or how businesses should be run? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's an answer to that question because there are so many different um, types of businesses. For example, uh, a company running, um, say, a security firm. I think it's very important that they have very clearly defined shifts and a uniform and a set of rules and, and, and all that kind of stuff. It, it makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, if I'm running, you know, say, a movie studio, I don't think that those are my highest directives. I don't care what the people are wearing when they come. I, I don't care that they show up exactly on time for shifting, except in so far as when we're actually shooting stuff, right? And, and so, I, you know, I think that what we want to do is we want to look at what is the culture in which we can harvest the product or service best that we're trying to create. And, 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 and also, what is the environment that we can create that's going to allow people to be in flow and enjoying themselves and loving what they're doing. And, and I think that, um, you know, there are so many different types of people out there. There are some people that, you know, on, on values levels, they're very rule oriented and they're very, they're like, they like right and wrong and black and white and what have you. And, and they might do very well working in the police force or for securities company. And they would want that type of work environment and that structure. But if you try to put me or you, you in that type of structure, mm -hmm. I, I think that it's not going to work at all. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's tough to prescribe that there's one particular model or one particular culture that would work for, for all businesses. But, but I, I do think that what there should be is a lot more attention paid to creating environments where the employees are, enjoy being there, you know, where they, where they need to be reminded to leave at the end of the day. I think that's always a good sign. Well, I, I don't, not sure if I shared with you, Eric, the team may not have got the stuff to you. I've actually come full circle background into my core genius zone of working with businesses on building culture and specifically because I believe happiness is the greatest hack to productivity and profitability. And it's our responsibility as business owners to create a ripple effect of lowering stress, anxiety, and depression and creating a place that everyone wants to get up in the morning and come be a part of rather than wake up in the morning, want to pull the covers over the head and, you know, wish that they didn't exist anymore. So I love all the things you said there about flow. We obviously we've come from a similar school of thought with um, the profiling of people and understanding character traits. And, you know, just because someone loves structure and 
and rules and things like that, that does, even though they're opposite to us, that doesn't make them weird and uh, wrong. And same with them looking at us if we're a bit out there and, and high energy and can't do the structure and a bit more think on our feet, that freaks them out. Understanding that the, the, the world needs all types. Can you drop in a little bit more for me on, uh, I want to just go a bit deeper on creating company culture, understanding that every business does need a different culture. How do you, um, how do you help people figure out what to do with their culture and, and what does culture mean to you? Well, I'll give you two different answers. One is the very, very easy answer. And that is that um, I, I have a general rule and the rule is this, however, I want the client um, to be treated. However, I want the client to be taken care of is how the frontline staff have to be treated. And however I want the frontline staff to be treated is how their direct report managers need to be treated. And, and, and that just keeps going up, right? So in, in, in essence, what that means is, is that, um, you know, what, however you treat the people, if you're the owner, however you treat the people that are directly reporting to you is how they're going to treat the next batch of people. And at the end, that's all going to filter down to the client experience. And, and uh, you know, well, it's funny. Wonderful Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I was having a um, I was having a real difficulty with my cell phone provider in, in in England many years ago, and I don't know how it's there these days, but back then it was like once they got you on a contract, it was like you were never getting out. Didn't matter how bad the service was, you were never getting out. You're paying your dues. In my case, they they had been so terrible that I I got with a supervisor, and the supervisor said, "You're right. We're going to let you out of your contract. We've been so bad to you. We're going to let you out. I've made a note in your file. You just need to call this number, and they'll do it." So I call the number and the woman answers the phone like this. Hello, retentions department. And I'm like, holy crap. Like she announces that it's the retentions department. Like, for, like how did you, first of all, how to get the clients back up, right? You know, you've been told you can cancel. So I said to her, hi, I know you have a script and you want to follow that script because your job is to try to stop me from canceling. But I want to shortcut us both a huge amount of time. I've spoken with the supervisor. The supervisor has given me permission to get out and they've made a note in my file. So all I'm asking you to do right now is process the cancellation. And she, she stops, she reads the file and she's just devastated. Like she's pissed off. And here's the deal. Her remuneration is based on retention. So here she's going to have to hold a whole call where there's no chance, right? No chance of making money. And so she's mean to me and she's rude and it's just, it's all going horrible. Now, check this out. At one point, I just, I, I can't handle this anymore. I don't, I don't want to be treated like this. I went, I am so, I, and I started thinking to myself, you know, poor, poor woman, she, she got on this call. This is her chance. It's a sales call for her, right? And I've told her I'm not buying, but yet she still has to spend the next half hour with me. You know, all right. So, so I go, I am so sorry. And she's like, I'm sorry, what? And I said, I just, I'm really sorry. And she goes, why? And I go, you know, I just, I do a lot of customer service consulting and training. And in my experience, however, the clients are being treated is how the staff is being treated internally. And honestly, based on the way you're treating me, they must treat you like shit. <laughs> I was like, I fully expected her to hang up on me at that point, because that company has a policy of hanging up the minute you use profanity. Don't ask me how I know that policy. I'm just saying they have that policy. And, but she didn't hang up on me. She immediately went, you're right. They treat us terribly here. And she said, and I am sorry that I let that get through to you. She goes, I am so sorry. What, what did we do to you anyway that made this so bad? 
So she started, you know, I started telling her what happened, what happened. She goes, what network are you going to? And I said, well, I'm just heartbroken. You guys have just released the first ever color palm device. Like this is long before iPhones and stuff, right? And I wanted to get it from your network. It's the only network you can buy them from. So I'm going to go get this other device over there. And she goes, those things are expensive. I go, I know they're like 1200 pounds. She goes, I can give you one. I said, what? She goes, look, we have a whole budget range that we're supposed to use to try to get people to stay with the account. And, and my budget goes all the way to giving you one of those. So instead of giving you 50 and then 70 and then 80, I just give you one of those. It's 1200. What? She goes, I go, no, 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 no. Because I know that if you give it to me, it's going to lock you back in for two years. And she goes, you're right, but I can just put a note that you're exempted from that. <laughs> so she sends me a 1,200 pound phone, makes a note that I canceled. Three months Which, later, the service- day, if it's a Palm phone, 1,200 pound is like $10,000. Yeah, we're talking five grand in today's money, right? We're talking way beyond what an iPhone would cost. But anyway, she-, she um, she does all this, sends me the brand phone. Three months later, the service is still terrible. The technical, and I end up canceling, but I get to keep the phone. Now, here's the thing though. She demonstrated to us culture. She was being treated badly, constantly being quoted chapter and verse regulations, being, you know, being beaten up when she didn't achieve targets and so on. And so she was doing the same thing to clients. That's my first rule. Then the second rule is, and this is a little bit more tongue in cheek, but culture. Do you know what the abbreviation of culture is? <laughs> cult. So if you want to understand how to build a culture, all you have to do is kind of examine the core rules of building a cult. And, and it, you're not really allowed to say this in public because the word cult has this like, oh, it's an evil cult and they're going to drink Kool-Aid. No, it's just short for culture. And so what are some of the key things that cause a, a great culture? Well, one of the things is common mission and purpose. So for example, at WildFit, our people know we are here to massively improve the quality of billions of people's lives on earth. And that is a common purpose. So we're all aligned. Then, and I would say that people yeah. do think that WildFit is kind of cult-like. <laughs> My dad's like, you're in a cult. And I'm like, I'm, I'm happily in this cult, dad. Like, we are not eating white bread in this house. <laughs> but again, what, what, you know, what, what part of what's going on there is, you know, there's language, right? Language makes a cult, that there's common language and, 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 and that kind of stuff. So when you, when you get these things right, what ends up happening is people start feeling like they belong. That's the thing. They start feeling like they belong. And, and I think that what we really want to do as business owners is, first of all, figure out what the belonging culture is for our core staff. Then what is the belonging culture for our tribe, for our clients and prospects and, and members and that kind of stuff? And if you can nail that, you know, everything changes. Beautiful. So you said a couple of the things was having a common mission and purpose. What else, what else helps build the belonging? What helps even like from the first step, how do you get the right people to join the organization? And how do you embed that in the, their first you know, few weeks, even if they're remote staff, because I know you've got team distributed all over the world as well, right? Um, you know, I, I think that one, one of the issues is, is recognizing um, that you, you really need, um, you need very different people. Like, look, if we're going to try and survive on an island, we need somebody who knows how to make fire. We need somebody who knows how to fish. We need somebody who knows how to build a shelter. You know, like we need a bunch of different skills on the island. And I know you've done a lot of work with uh, um, like with Roger Hamilton and Wealth Dynamics and that kind of stuff. And at Business Freedom, we teach a very similar system called the Eight Paths, which is again about identifying a natural path that people follow easily. 
And so when you're building your team and your company, one of the things you have to pay attention to is that all the roles uh, in the company are not simply going to be handled because that's how that's kind of the unconscious business management. Conscious business management is like that all the roles are going to be handled by somebody who loves handling them. That, that, that's really key to the whole thing, right? So as long as one person is doing a job they don't like, that's a problem with the culture. And, and, and so, you know, and, and, and this is a tough thing because people like you and I traditionally believe that nobody would ever like to do numbers. Why would anybody do that, right? Like, why? <laughs> were they dropped when they were children? What, what happened to them? You know, I don't understand. Were they given the wrong cereal growing up? Yeah. But the truth is, is there's some people who just really like that stuff. And, 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 and when they're done doing your accounting, they go out and buy a Sudoku puzzle and go do that. They love it so much, right? So if we can identify people based on their proclivity, based on what they love to do, and we can put them in those right roles, that's one of the most powerful things for building a really solid culture because everybody's happy. Everybody's, you said it yourself, happiness, right? Well, if people are going to work and 99% of what they do on a given day is stuff that they feel good at, that they enjoy, that they feel confident about, they feel like they're making progress, they're not complaining. They're loving it. Yeah. So everything you described there for me is kind of like the definition of flow. So what, what does you, because you used the word flow earlier, what does flow mean to you? Um. I, I guess there's a few ways to look at it. Flow, what, if we look at what it really means, it means that um, energy is moving in a direction that we enjoy. Uh, you know, so it, 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 well, in fact, we, it flow can even mean it's energy just moving. We don't even have to enjoy it. If there's, if there's a river flowing past your house, it has flow. If you turn the light switch on, the electricity is flowing. It, there's, there's momentum, inertia, movement. That's, that's flow. When we think about flow as a human being, then it means that our energy is moving. Our energy is not stuck. And, and so here, here, here's the thing. If I want to make your energy stuck, what I should do is hand you a bunch of accounting records and ask you to find the errors, right? And then the, your energy will become stuck. My energy would become stuck. I wouldn't like that very much, right? But at the same time, if I came to you and said, hey, you know what? I've got this group of people over here that just don't understand LinkedIn at all. And they would just love for you to walk them through the key principles of how they can design it and stuff. And by the way, you're not even doing that anymore, but you love it. It would be flow. It'd be easy for you. You wouldn't have to, you wouldn't even need to prepare. I do it in a lot. Yeah. There it is. And, and to me, that's, that's flow. And then of course, flow can be, um, uh, uh, you know, flow can be kind of like interrupted or disturbed or it can be harmonized. And so for me, interrupted is I ask you to do something that you really don't enjoy or don't feel proficient at or haven't had the training at and what have you. And so your flow is going to get interrupted. What I mean is even if it is something you like, right? Like I'll, I'll give you a great example. Kiteboarding as a creative, you would love it. There's no question you would like it. The difficulty is, can you get through the first 5%, right? That's the tough part. So, and, and this is the tough part for anybody identifying something new that is in their flow. If they can't have enough willpower to get through the first 5%, then they can't find flow on the other side because the flow has been disrupted, right? So now if somebody's able to overcome that, then they start getting to the side where they start having progress. Well, progress stimulates flow. The more progress you feel like you're having, the more naturally the energy flows. It's, it, it, progress is fundamental to human motivation. And then 
flow kind of gets harmonized when you bring all those things together, like a clear vision, because now the flow knows where it's going. You know, uh, um, the, 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 the alignment of the people around you that are also in flow, because now you don't feel like you have to pay attention to all the other things that are happening because you, you just know they're happening. And, and then, of course, the obstacles of um, tasks you don't enjoy or events that you aren't good, you know, that you're not enjoying or things that you're not yet proficient at. If the more you remove those things, the, the easier your day becomes. But there's one issue, and that is that if you don't constantly remember, progress is fundamental. So if, if you if you um, if 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 flow starts feeling like it's downhill, like it's like oh, it's so fast, it's just going, it's going, and then we aren't challenging ourselves, that we aren't learning new stuff, then we're going to end up stagnant again at the bottom. And so, how do we keep it flowing downhill? We keep you know, digging at our comfort zones, we keep pushing for the next level, we keep developing skills to help us with the next thing and so on. Yeah, amazing. I always say that, yeah, flow is like on the edge of your ability and it meets where you're on the edge of your comfort zone. So it's that little bit of, it's enough challenge to keep you excited and having the growth factor, but enough security of your ability that you can back yourself to get there. And that's where that excitement comes and like you said so it stops you from pulling into a stagnant pond at the very bottom <laughs> um yeah. the other thing i love about what you teach as well eric is i i use the um the framework from the alliance which is from the linkedin co-founders and reed hoffman around um creating alliance blueprints and frameworks and tools of duty you use role architecture and role exits and things like that can you just talk me through how do you figure out what roles because it's kind of breaking the the traditions of here's a job description and we put people in these boxes and that they might actually require three different personality types to deliver on that how do you go right what is what are these profiles what are these people that i need and how do i create the architecture of my business i, th I think the way we approach it at, at business freedom is that we um, or in my businesses for that matter is that we look at the the core functions of the business right so you know there's got to be a leader there's there's got to be some somebody who's ultimately responsible for day to day making 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 decisions and, and kind of keeping the ship steering in the right direction. But then you've got some other core functions like the, you know somebody's got to be primarily responsible for bringing revenue in the door you know call that your CMO or you know whatever your sales director or whatever it is. Then somebody's got to be primarily responsible for making sure that the company does what it's supposed to do and delivers right that it actually make thing, makes things happen. And you also need to have somebody who's going to make sure that the technology is working well and that the systems are in place in order to make sure that the company can do what it needs to do. And then you need to have somebody who is counting the money and, and, and making sure that more money is coming in than going out. Now, there may be other you know, core roles at the top, but you know, you're basically talking about your core four functions at the top. Then what, what we do is we, we, don't, we don't build organizational charts where we go, here are all the people we have, put them on a map. We build a map based on those core functions and then the roles that exist underneath each of those functions. And so by the end of the process, in fact, I, it's funny, I've got one on the board right behind us right now because I'm working on it in one of my businesses. By the end of the process, we have a complete organizational chart that doesn't have a single name on it. It just has the functions of the business detailed. And what that is, is a map for a procedures documentation process. And it's a coloring book for adding people to Right. Like you, you now know, oh, I need people to do these various things. And of course, 
once you've kind of identified these roles, then it becomes a lot easier to take a look and say, well, what kind of people do I need, right? And so here's a good example. Um, what often happens in small businesses is that um, promotions happen by vacuum. Somebody's doing a job, the company grows, and that person gets sucked up into the next job. You know, they get the next promotion or what have you. And that's through a combination of the, uh, you know, the business owner maybe not really understanding the consequences of doing that and the employee having a desire for promotion that isn't always practical. And, and, you know, sometimes people want a promotion beyond their own capabilities and they don't really know that. And that's, that's difficult. So instead of doing that, what we want to do is look at every single role that's in the business and identify what kind of person are we actually looking for to do this? Like, obviously we don't want to have a creative person doing our accounting. Then we all go to prison. Like that's a, it's not useful. Right? Creative accounting. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we want to, have, yeah, we want to have, we want to have somebody who really loves numbers that has the right training in that, in that, in that, you know, in that field and enjoys it a great deal. And so then we, we can start populating those boxes with the right person. And the way we do it is when we've put somebody in a box that we feel is they're in the right box and they're in the right box for at least a year or two, then the box is blue. It's blue. But if we put somebody in a box and we go, you know, they can handle this box. They can, they can do it. They, they got it. But we know that it'll burn them out over time because it's not their flow. They, it, it, they're going to use force to do this because, you know, it's early stage of the company. And we're just going to have to do that. Like it might be you that has to do that. It might be me that has to do that. I had to do the accounts for my first company, of course, right? So th those boxes are, are green. They're green in that we're, 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 ready, we're ready to replace. We're, we're, we're not urgent, but we're ready to replace somebody in here. And then any box that has somebody in it that really shouldn't be in that box, like they're doing it, but they hate it, or they're not good at it, or they're bad for culture, or any of that kind of stuff, or- You've got a celebrity doing a, what's your, what's your opposite on your eight profiles? Celebrity. Um, yeah, well, I mean, just use the, yeah, if, if you've got somebody who's like the super life of the party extrovert and, and, and you've got them handling customer care, uh, you know, that, that might not work so very well. It, you know, it, it, by the way, it might if they have the right training, but you understand the point is that, is, is that if somebody is in that wrong role, then we want to, then that role, that box gets red. And another reason that the box might get red is if there's two or three people in that role because nobody wants to do it. So there's three people kind of muddling their way through it. Or frankly, if there's nobody in that role, then it's red. And what that immediately does is it creates a prioritization of hiring. You immediately begin to know what your urgencies are rather than being um, you know, kind of blown east and west by the events of the given day. You have a real map that says, wow, these are the red zones. We gotta start looking for those people right away. And you know what's fascinating? As soon as you do this, you start like going to a networking event or you're talking to a supplier or whatever, and you, you, you have this new vision, which is looking for a particular type of person. And then you meet that person and you're like, you know what? I might have an opportunity for you. Rather than the old method, which is I need somebody, anybody. Now I like this person, I'll hire them. And then later you find out- I like them because they like me. Person. I like them because they like me, so- Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is the complete opposite person that you need in your business. <laughs> and, uh, that just reminds me of uh, one of the sayings you're probably familiar with, which is if you know the what, by, when, the who and the how will show up. So once you've, once you've got your red and you know what you need and when you need it, then like you said, the universe starts showing you these people because your, your blinkers yeah. are off and you're, you're able to, 
to see them. Um, the other thing that it gives you, Jade, that's so nice is that whether it's you or a partner or an employee that's in a red box, the trouble is, is that when you're in a red box and nobody's admitted that it's a red box, then you're in a job that you don't like and you have no idea when it's going to end. And that just feels like a prison sentence, right? It doesn't feel good. But the minute you do this process and you go, look, this is a red box, you put a timeline and you go, you know what? We got three months to deal with this. Then whoever's in that red box goes, okay, awesome. And what's crazy is they start doing a better job and they document what they're doing because yes. they're preparing for the replacement. Because they're like, I just need to get this off my desk as That's soon right. as possible. And the That's sooner right. I can get someone else up to speed, the better I, I can fly, fly free. So yes, they take control of, okay, how would I train someone to do this really, really great so I never have to come back here? Yeah. And I think if, I think that's really important for business owners to think of because often they're wearing all the different hats and they're in most of the red boxes. And if you can look at it at the perspective of, okay, run this project, focus on this one thing, document it great, get someone that loves doing it and can do it better than me and just get the systems down once, you can release it and then you can focus on what gives you more energy. Yeah, that's right. When... When should, like when we talked about, you, you spoke about the four different types of uh, sort of energies and roles, when should the business owner not be the person steering the ship? What sort of personality type should be in control or what stage of the business? Um, I tend to, um, I tend to believe that um, just about anybody can actually steer their business depending on the type of business they're in. Um, but that there are um, stages of your business where you're going to transcend your ability potentially to steer it. And at that point, what we're going to want to do is attract somebody who is, um, has a natural proclivity for, um, uh, for the management style of leadership. You know, if we think of leadership as being there's different styles of leadership, right? So there's like sort of cultish leadership, which is what, you know, when we talk about people that are on the path of celebrity or the star profile and wealth dynamics, and, you know, that, that's somebody who could be a cultish leader, but don't ask them to actually manage the people potentially, right? <laughs> um, and, then, and then you can have a visionary leadership, and that is somebody who's leading with their ideas. So people get so tied up in their vision. Somebody like, say, Steve Jobs is a visionary leadership. Their vision is so big that people fall into the vision. And, and, and again, that's great, except you might not really want the visionary doing the day-to-day -day management of those people. And one of the reasons for that is very often there's a fine line between vision, visionary and lunacy. And, and that line, sometimes, by the way, that line is so blurry that you only actually find out which side of the line you're on after you've either succeeded or failed. So I, I would say that there's been a fair few people over the years that have said that Elon Musk is on the lunacy side of the line, only now they're starting to go, well, maybe visionary. <laughs> He's just, he has an ability to make things happen. But equally, I've seen many other visionaries who put these huge visions out there and they talk about them like they're real, but they're not. And they're real in their imagination, but they're not real in their practical deployment yet. And, and so that makes them not the ideal necessarily, the ideal leaders, leaders or managers. Their ideas are good for creating the vision of leadership. 
And then the last type of leader, from my perspective, is um, the manager leader, the, 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 the person who's good at people, good at understanding people, um, good at understanding what motivates them, takes an interest in them, is, is, um, is good at, 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 uh, at, at motivating them and inspiring them. And um, th that, to me, is the person who ultimately should be leading a, a business once it's hit a certain level of growth. So in my case, as somebody who's more of a creative, um, when I run my businesses, um, there are issues with that. Now, I, I ran my first business for six years before I hired a manager, and it was, it was fine. But I, the minute I turned that management over to somebody else, it actually freed me up to do my flow more regularly, which was so much better for the growth of the business in the end. And so the same thing, I've been going through the exact same thing in developing WildFit and developing these things is identifying the, the right leaders in those positions who bring the right energy. So I can focus on creating the programs. I can focus on creating the coaching systems and so on. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Let's talk, I had a couple of questions come through from the tribe about leadership development, but I'm going to put a different spin on it because it's kind of a segue to, to WildFit as well. Because I really believe as business leaders, we need to be at full health, full brain capacity, full energy, inflow, and setting ourselves up to, to show up as the best version of ourselves. Can you talk through how you feel um, living wild fit or like why it was important for you to create wild fit and how that would affect a business owner and sort of the pitfalls of maybe how other dietary habits may hold us back from, from showing up to the best version of ourselves? I think the first thing to really say here is that um, people tend to think of food, if, if they even think of food relative to health, which sadly not enough people do, but if they do think of food relative to health, they, they tend to think, oh, I'm pretty healthy, I'm doing okay, um, you know, uh, and what have you. And the truth of the matter is even, even some of the healthiest people in the world that think they're the healthiest people in the world are misunderstanding entire issues around how their metabolism operates. Now, here's the trouble is that what most people don't realize is that a huge amount of their emotional experience of the world is created both by the actual material that they eat and also by the way they operate their metabolism. And so, so for example, somebody who is, uh, um, you know, has a very carb rich diet, and I'm not one of these anti-carb people at all. I'm, I just, I have a very realistic appraisal of um, of seasonality and the, the way the body is supposed to be operating. And, and so when somebody eats a consistently carb-rich diet, then, then they, their metabolism becomes used to sugar burning. And when they, when they become used to sugar burning, their uh, mood stabilization becomes very difficult. And, you know, they, they start having ups and downs and those ups and downs oddly trigger more sugar cravings, which create higher ups and downs. And, and then sometimes triggers weight gain, which of course triggers excess hormone production, which causes more ups and downs. And, and so, you know, I'm talking an extreme case, but what a lot of people don't realize is that even the smallest decisions they make in the day are influenced by their emotional realities. And so when they choose to eat um, something particularly dysfunctional, what they don't realize is that in the same way they shouldn't drive their car when they're drunk, they shouldn't run their business when their metabolism is off because when something absolutely terrible happens, they can't get their head in the game, right? I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm sitting here on this podcast with you. I've, I'm going through one of the toughest stretches I've gone through in business in a long time. One of the most people most dear to me in my life has completely turned on me. And it's, it's one of the most, it's really been absolutely challenging for me in a professional capacity, like really difficult all day long. 
But you know what? At the end of the day, I, I have a healthy metabolism. I'm, I'm, I, I, I respond to these things. I don't, I, if I was 23 years old and eating sugar all the time, I would react to everything. But you know what, what happens in this case is I'm here with you. And, and until I told you this, did, could you tell that I was having a tough day? I, you know, no. And, and I think that that's something people don't really understand enough about their relationship with food is they think it's just about their weight or they think it's just about maybe whether they get cancer one day in the future or something like that. But it is actually about your day-to-day -day experience of life, the here and now. And so the, the choice to eat a Cinnabon to give yourself a treat is the choice to take a minute and a half of pleasure and to screw up your emotional response for the next 45 minutes to two days and therefore affect every decision you make during that time. So I, I'm, I'm, look, I'm a little fanatical about it, but I, I really, I, I believe that if you want to have the best experience of life, then it, it really behooves you to take a look at what it is you're putting in your body. Yeah. I've, one of the things I've loved saying lately is like garbage, garbage in, garbage out. Like you can't put diesel in a petrol car and <laughs> petrol in a diesel car just doesn't work. And, yeah. un, and likewise, everyone knows if they've been to one of those crappy service stations that's had the, the fuel messed with the performance of your engine. But I think what the problem is, obviously marketing, we won't go into all the you know, marketing issues of what's happened out of the food industry and what the garbage we've been said about what's healthy and what's not healthy. But a lot of people don't understand what isn't healthy. Like the amount of people that I know don't understand that carbs turn into sugar or say, I don't eat much sugar. And they don't look at all of the other things and the, the side effects of that. Um, what do you, what would be your advice to, to get started? Like, to for someone to go okay maybe i'm not operating at the best of my ability maybe actually i've recognized that in the morning if i have a cinnabon or something sugary for breakfast then i'm having a crash or if i don't have anything at all maybe i'm off or is it the fact that people aren't recognizing that's where they should start maybe as a business owner taking a journal of how do you feel each time you're you're doing these things you know um I was doing this talk. I, I, I spent some time touring with Tony Robbins and teaching business at his events and so on. And one day we were talking about, um, you know, game day, like how to prep yourself to go to work and, and that kind of stuff. And I, I shared something with the audience that actually got a round of applause from the riser, from the production riser, from, the, from Tony's team. And it took the audience a while to get why they were clapping because they really hadn't heard it. And, and, and I, so I want to share it with you. And that is that, you know, most people listening to us right now, if they were suddenly told that you're going to be born into a life where you're going to be, say, a professional tennis player, and you're going to wake up and you're going to be 28 years old and getting ready to go play Wimbledon that morning, they would they would say, well, yeah, of course I'll eat well. I'll eat the right breakfast and I'll, I'll focus on it and I'll do my breathing exercises and I'll do my warm-ups and I'll do my power moves and I'll do my mantras because I got to win the game. Why? Well, because the opportunity is so significant. And, 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 you know, the same thing if you tell them you could be an actor and you're going to be, you know, you're, you could be the next Robert De Niro or the next, you know, Meryl Streep or something, right? Oh, yeah, I would take it fully seriously. I would do it. I would do whatever it took. Why? Because the opportunity is so significant. Like, well, no, it really isn't. You know, the richest actor in the world isn't a billionaire and, um, and, and he's the richest and, and the next richest is, you know, not a billionaire. And then if you go like 23 actors down that list, they're living in trailer parks. Now I'm of course exaggerating, but the fact is, is that it is the tiniest percentage of people that are able to turn that career into something phenomenal. And the same with sports. And by the way, in sports, 
look, Roger Federer, how old is he now? 37 years old? Two years ago, they started talking about how old he is. He's so old, right? Well, that's because there's- What about Kelly Slater? That guy's ancient. About Kelly Slater, that guy's ancient. Well, there you go. Just, you know, ancient. But here's the thing. In entrepreneurship, you're talking about a sport that is literally unlimited in its capacity to create and generate wealth for you. The, the, the number one guy in our sport is currently worth $150 billion. The number two is worth $130 billion. And you can ca- talk, keep talking all day and you're still talking about billionaires. Then we take a whole week to talk about the triple digit millionaires. Then we could talk all next month about the double digit millionaires. And then we could talk for a year about the single digit millionaires. It's the most exciting sport in the world. So if we're willing to eat right to play tennis, if we're willing to eat right and prepare and do the right stuff to play a role in a movie, we should be willing to to prep ourselves for game day in our profession. And there's no age limit. The the difference that can be made at any age with changing this thought process, because I think what I love about WildFit, I'm not not here to sell WildFit, but everyone who follows me knows that I'm a bit (laughs) crazy on it. But it's because of the mindset for me. It's about what you've just said then. It's about understanding that we can't be at our peak performance if we're not fueling ourselves as peak performers and changing the mindset. And, And even if that's just the one thing that everyone takes out of today for me, if you just went, actually, what am I doing to set myself up to be on rather than a roller coaster emotional ride, peaks, troughs, crashes, caffeine hits, blah, and like, because that is how you react and it's the and it's the energy you radiate to the people around you as well. If everyone can just start to recognize what did I do to get make myself in this state? So I talk a lot about energy states. Like how did I get to this state? How do I manage this state? How do I feel like I know I I'm I say I don't I don't like to eat at a certain time of the day because I actually crash after I eat. So I know that I can't have lunch before I'm about to do a podcast because I literally start to, it's like my body goes into shutdown to do it. And I know that I, there's a few things I need to change because I don't eat regularly enough at the moment to, to, to fix that. But I'm at least I'm having that awareness and I'm like, okay, I can recognize it. The problem I think most people do is they just shove something in and they don't take the time to think about the effects. So if we can just yeah. get people to think about the effects, I have a selfish question for you. Sure. Uh, I'm the new stepmom of a 10 and a 12 year old. Um, and their mum's a Michelin star chef. Aren't I lucky? I grew up in a trailer park. So <laughs> <laughs> with an ex mercenary father, uh, the, the level of chefing was fried spam. Uh, and drippings on toast. So, <laughs> I, and I'm trying to introduce WildFit and I'm trying to make better choices for even like packing their, their lunch to go to the industrialized school. Uh, that's a whole nother problem. But what, and I, we had a few questions from the tribe, like how can we, like when we're, when we're coming into young people's lives and we haven't had the opportunity to, to bring them through the process and, and live this way, what's your advice for people like me and what do we feed our kids when we send them to school <laughs> when they go no, to the baby what do we give them <laughs> I, I do run into this a lot obviously you know with with clients in 130 countries around the world I get a lot of interesting questions about how can I get my kids to do this so the first thing I've taken a look at is the clients of mine that have successfully led their children you know and and for example 
um, I met one of my clients and I got to her house. I, we were doing a documentary and we filmed, we showed up at her house in, on Vancouver Island and she introduced me to her son. And her son was, I, if I remember correctly, 14 or 15 at the time. And, and he had done wild fit and he'd lost about 20 pounds and completely transformed his life. And we were interviewing about that. And so then I said, well, how did your mom convince you to do this? And he busted out laughing and she busted out laughing. And he said, you convinced me to do it, not her. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I was at an event where you were speaking in Vancouver. What you said made sense to me. And I convinced my mom to buy us both a place and do it together. And, and so I then dove in and asked him what motivated him about it and so on. I'll come to that in a minute. But then in the meantime, his little brother walks out. We didn't even know this when we went over the documentary. The little brother walks out. And it turns out that the little brother also did it with them. And, um, and the year before that had not been able to qualify for, for sports at school. And this year was the star of the track team, had completely transformed his physical reality by changing his relationship with food. So we got the opportunity to see that one child at the right age was able to see the vision, was able to see, I don't want to be controlled by the food industry anymore. And I don't want to give into that. And the other child, the younger one, was led there by an older brother and a mother who led the way. Children don't respond well to pushing. In fact, they, they're designed to rebel against pushing. They're designed to do that. They, they love it. They get, they get dopamine for saying no. Yes. That's where they do. Let's just challenge and see how far we can push the edge. Yeah. yeah. And so my, my general advice to parents kind of works like this. If your children are, are, are new, if you're talking babies, well, obviously babies breastfeed them. That's that. Right. Okay. Then the next level is as they start eating solid food, do everything you can to prevent them from experiencing junk. No Coke, no chocolate, none of that stuff. Don't even give it to them. They don't know what it is anyway. So why, why be the drug dealer of their life? Right. So don't, don't give it to them because it, the longer you can wait for them to experience that stuff, the more consciousness of consequence they will have when they eventually do. And that's really key. So for example, um, a child that's been eating sugar or drinking Coke, like me, like my mom, I, it, it's not her fault at all, but we were traveling, we were traveling from Africa to America, we were on a boat, I was allergic to milk, I was allergic to most juices, for some reason there was something wrong, and, and the doctor said, well, what does he like to drink, he has to drink something, and my mom says, well, he likes Coca-Cola, well, get him something, he has to be hydrated, the doctor said, and so at two years old, I'm drinking Coca-Cola. That means by the time I get to five or six, I can't spot the relationship between my sugar crashes and headaches and all. I don't know because I've lived that way the whole time. But if you if you drink Coke for the first time at seven or eight years old and you've never had all that refined sugar, it tastes disgusting. You know what my daughter says about Coca-Cola? You can ask her. If I, I'd love to bring her in right now. She's, she's out. But you ask her, what's Coca-Cola for? She'd say cleaning the toilet. Cleaning you know, the she, she tasted it one time. I wasn't around. She tasted it one time and she said it was so sweet that it was gross. She's four. Now, I'm not saying she'll never drink Coca-Cola. You know, you never know what influences are coming along. But the longer you can hold them back from that stuff. Okay, so now you move to the next stage. Five to say 12 or 13. If, you've, if they've had that stuff before they're five and you're in that window, you're in trouble. You're in trouble because they want it. They're addicted to it. The marketing is happening. They're being manipulated. Their biochemistry is being altered. Like, it, it, you're, you're just in trouble. And all I can say is do the best you can to lead by example. That's it, just lead. Lead by example. And the more you really, like if you try and restrict stuff, then they simply get more, more dopamine for rebelling against you. So you just double how good it feels to eat the stuff you've restricted. So it's just not worth it. Ah, but what you can do is you can start identifying consequence for them. 
Like if your children end up going to the dentist and having to have uh, um, cavities, you know, and having to have drilling, then while the drilling has happened, you should talk quite openly about the foods they enjoy that have sugar in them while they're in pain, while they're in discomfort. You, you listen to me, if this sounds awful and it sounds manipulative, like don't think for a second the food industry isn't doing the exact opposite of making sure that your child is in the best state of mind and then showing them their logo. They're, they're doing the exact thing. You have to do the opposite. My son once got some food uh, poisoning from, you know, I, I wouldn't want to name names, you know, from a, from a, from a food place that contain, you know, claims to be from Kentucky and makes fried chicken. But, but there was a place that he went to and got food poisoning. And while I was rubbing his back, while he vomited, I just kept going, man, I bet those 11 herbs and spices don't taste so good on the way out your nose, you know, and, and then he got it all over himself. Right. And it's like all over his hands. And I go, it ain't so finger licking good anymore. is it? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, you got to have a black belt in psychology to be a parent because you're competing against the food industry. And, and by the way, as a consequence, as far as I know, he didn't step into another KFC for 20 some odd years after that. And so, you know, you got to, you got to kind of employ what you can. Now, at the ages you're talking about, one of the things that I would seriously consider is recognize that those children need to learn about money too. And so one of the things I recommend at that stage is that you start increasing the children's allowance, but also increasing the, the level of things they're responsible for. You want clothes? You buy them yourself. I'll buy the big stuff. I'll buy the winter coat. I'll buy the skis. But when you need like clothes, that's on you. And here's your allowance. And now you go out for dinner and they go, can I have a Coke? You're like, you've got money. <laughs> and let them begin to experience the consequence, not just the health consequence, but the financial consequence of eating those things. Yeah. Oh, you want a fresh squeezed juice? I'll get you. You want water? I got that. You want a Coke? It's on you. And you start to kind of, you know, um, you start to kind of get them to be more conscious of their buying decisions. That's Ooh. the nutshell version, you know, that I can offer you now. Yeah. I absolutely love that. Now, I am conscious that there's so much that I want to dive into and we're only scratching the surface and I'm not going to put you on the spot to say, please come back because I need to ask more. But I do, one dear friend that uh, was part of my um, business freedom mini mastermind asked me to ask you a question and I and I I didn't, I hadn't heard of this before. So I'm really intrigued to ask it. So Marcus has asked me to, he said, in the quantum shift experience. Now, firstly, what is the quantum shift experience? Uh, the quantum shift experience is a three-day deep dive into what we call human quanta. So usually the word quantum, in the personal development space, the word quantum has been hijacked and it means big. You're going to make a quantum leap. Well, you know, in physics, quantum means infinitesimally small. And, and so in, in the quantum shift experience, what we've done is we've created a process for identifying um, the, the, these quanta, these, the, these smallest aspects of being human and working on those things, beliefs, values, automatic behaviors, rules, uh, um, you know, instincts, we, we, we go into those things very deeply and make very small shifts in people. We help them make these very small shifts so that unlike a lot of like educational or personal development programs, we have to go and take a lot of notes and then force yourself to do stuff. Our goal is that you come to that program and on Monday, you are just doing things differently. You are, you are just behaving differently because we've made a series of micro shifts to your beliefs, to your values, to your automatic behaviors, to your rules, to your instincts, so that you don't have to use a bunch of willpower to create the results you want from your life. Okay, well, great. Now, no wonder he was like, 
supremely shifted. But he said, you talk about uh, triggers within any relationship and that they are there because you put them there to be triggered to learn and grow. His question is, how do you distinguish the trigger part as and the real necessity to set boundaries since those two things are often intertwined, it seems? Yeah, it, it's really tough. We're, we're, we're in this world at the moment and, and it's, 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 look, here's one of my expressions. Um, I just, this came out of me one day in a workshop and it just stuck with me, but it's this, it's like very simple. And probably somebody said some version of it before. I'm not claiming ownership. I'm just saying I said it one day and it stuck with me and here it is. The easier you are to offend, the easier you are to control. And, and I think that's a motto that the world should be adopting at the moment, because what's happening is we're developing a culture around the world where there's a new form of democracy, and that is that the more, the, the more victimized you've been, the more votes you get, the louder voice you get. And, and so we're at the place now where, you know, it's like, well, you know, for example, I'm a middle-aged white guy. I'm not allowed to comment on, you know, white-black race relations in America. Not allowed to comment on that because I'm a middle-aged white guy. Rubbish. Rubbish at all. You know, the minute we shut down conversation, we have shut down progress. So with that as the backdrop, when we talk about the difference between boundaries and triggers, I view it like this. Boundaries are a matter of like, say, injury. Like this person is hurting me. Like their, 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 their intention is bad. They, they, I, I, they, I, I, I know that their intent is to cause me harm. And I just choose not to be around that anymore. I create a boundary around that. I will not allow myself to be spoken that way. I have self-respect, right? Triggers are different though. And, and I suppose there's overlap, but what's happening these days is that, you know, people are, oh, that triggers me. So please don't do that. Well, you know, what I want to say is that if you have a trigger, you built it. If you have a button, you're the one who constructed it. And probably your triggers and buttons are a clue to the emotional growth that you are here to do. And so if your response to having your buttons pressed is that you recoil um, and you recede and you pull back and you get small, then you are not growing. If your response is to, uh, is, to, is to experience that button pushing or that triggering and to push into it and to experience it, then you're here for some serious growth. And that, that, that's where it's going to come from. So I, you know, I, I went through, um, you know, I, I, I went through a very like difficult personal event last year. And, um, and I will say that the uh, the person that I was going through this with is somebody that I love a great deal. And, and, you know, we really had a very, and we still have a very tight connection with heavy, but there were, there were moments where this person would resort to unconscionable threats, um, in our relationship. And I, um, wanted to put up boundaries, but this person just kept violating those boundaries anyway. Right. And, 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 and I realized after a while, what was happening is, is that when, when this threat was made, I would be like terrified of the threat. And please don't do that threat. And then worse than that, I would capitulate. I would capitulate and ultimately give the person what they wanted because of this threat. So think about what's going on. Not only am I not setting the boundary and I'm not growing from the process, but I'm rewarding the behavior, right? I'm rewarding the behavior because any behavior that you reward will be repeated. And so guess what? I'm in a, I'm in a loop. And then one day this person finally made the threat firmly enough that I actually believed them. 
And I, I sat there facing my deepest, darkest personal fear. It was like awful. And then I went, uh, uh, no, it isn't. Uh, in fact, frankly, it's, it's better than the way I'm living right now. I, I don't, I'm not afraid of this anymore. And it was by not, the problem is when people tease the button, tease the button. You know what you want? You want people that are good enough to come up and slam the button for you and go, bam, now face this stuff. Now, listen, Get with it. <laughs> this sounds really harsh and I don't, I, I'm not suggesting this is a therapeutic technique. And I recognize that there are times where people have had really significant childhood traumas and stuff. And I'm not suggesting that we suddenly walk around and push all of those buttons all the time. I'm just saying that for most of us, in my experience, this whole idea of, oh, I'm triggered by that, or, you know, don't, don't push my buttons. That's basically a request. It's basically saying, please don't, please don't respect me. Please don't treat me like a human being. Please treat me like I'm fragile. Please treat me like I can't handle life. And, and I just, I don't, you know, one, one of the things, Jade, you know, we're, uh, it's interesting how you have different levels of friendship. I consider you a friend. We don't know each other very, very well. We've known each other for a few years, but maybe one thing you know about me is, is that if you and I are having a conversation about something and I feel like you're going way off track, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to say, Jade, do I have permission to offer some advice here? And I'm, yeah, what is it? And I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that friend that's afraid to lose my friendship by telling you the truth. I'm just not that person. And, and I don't, I don't want, I don't want those people either. I want people who are willing to step up and go, you know what? You're being an asshole. Get it right. Sort it out. And, 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 and I don't want, I don't want people to get afraid of putting the, pushing the buttons and, 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 and pulling the triggers. That's probably one of the things that I've, I've been speaking about lately is we talk about some of the five people you spend the most time with, but looking at some of the five, like the people that I respect the most are people that are able to call me on my shit that are able to do it with love, but also like, go, ah, actually, do you think, like, my sister is amazing for this. She'll go, I think you're actually responding or reacting like that because you're being triggered and you haven't thought about this or you've stepped into ego because you've gone into protection mode because your self-worth is like doing this, like maybe you just need to have a look at that. And most people don't seek out those people because they want to, yeah, they want to stay safe or they want to keep the ego in, intact. It's like, how do you, not how do you, I challenge everyone to find those people and, and look at your circle and see if you've got that person that you do trust that can do that for you. And, and also where necessary, get a specialist, like, you know, get somebody to help pull that stuff out. If it's really, if it's really dark, I, I'm gonna, I'll give you a very personal example that was happening around the time of everything that I just described to you. And that was, um, I, I used to have this real like trigger and, 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 and the trigger was very simple. Um, if you, accused me or suspected me of wrongdoing, but I was wrongdoing. I was okay with that. Like, I, God, I'm okay with that. But if you accused me or suspected me of wrongdoing that I wasn't doing, I would be devastated by that. Devastated. And I would become um, dysfunctional. I would, I would, I would, I would, I would become unable to communicate effectively in my in my desire to be the good guy, I, in my desire to prove to you that I didn't have this ill intent or I didn't do this thing, it, it, it became debilitating. And, and so in a few of my relationships, I've had some people and, I and, and, and it's taken me years to realize that, um, you know, people who are generally quite trusting um, believe, uh, um, they, they are generally quite trusting because they're generally trustworthy. But the people who are generally not all that trusting are that way because they know what they're willing to do. 
In other words, there's a, been a few times in my life where people have like accused me of something nefarious. And I've, I've now come to realize it's only because they're prepared to do that thing. They're only, it's only because they think that way. It's not, has nothing to do with one me. To know one. What was that? The, the old saying, it takes one to know one. Like, yeah, something like that. And if you're not one, you can't even recognize they're doing that. Right. So in any event, here's what happened. And I was going through this and I was, I, I just, somebody was accusing me of stuff that I, that I absolutely wasn't doing, wasn't even thinking about doing, hadn't even considered doing, didn't even know it could be done. Like I just was, it was in another planet. And so I was really distraught about this. And then the person would not, like we couldn't communicate. There was no, there was no way to rectify it. And I got on the phone um, with a very good friend of mine, John Gray. Uh, you know, you probably know John as the author of the Mars Venus books and countless others. And just, uh, you know, just truly a brilliant man and a great therapist and a phenomenal, phenomenal human being. And, and one of the people I consider to be like, I just consider to be one of the closest people in my, in my life. And I really, I am grateful for the number of times he stepped in and given me what I needed in those moments. And so I called him this day and we spent about three hours on the phone and he just started asking me about my childhood. And at one point he asked me this question. He says, well, you know, have you, have you ever been in a situation as a child where somebody accused you of doing something you didn't do? And I go, yeah, routinely, that kind of stuff happens to kids all the time. And he goes, can you think of a time that was particularly painful? And no. And then flooding, yes. And what had happened was that my, my little brother was, was walking home from school one day. He's two and a half years younger than me. And, and I saw these kids were bullying him and they're all my size. So there were three of them and I didn't know how to fight. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And I'm only maybe nine years old or something at the time. And these other nine-year-olds are picking on my six and a half year old brother. And I go over and shout at them and they won't do anything. So I do the only reasonable thing I can do. I pick up some rocks and I throw rocks in their general direction. I'm not trying to hit them. I'm not an idiot. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not trying to kill anybody, you know, I just scare them off. And I got my brother and we head home and um, we get home and, and, you know, we had other things to do. By the time we got home, I walk in and there's parents sitting on the living room with my dad, the parents of the children. And they've filled my dad with these ideas that I'm some, you know, sadistic child who was like trying to kill their children with rocks and what have you. And my dad was, um, you know, this is, you know, he, he was in his final few years of, of alcoholism. Well, I, I suppose maybe you're always an alcoholic, but final few years of practicing alcoholism and consequently not maybe uh, the best listener at that stage. And so all he could hear, and also a lawyer, by the way, so all he could hear is that his child had thrown rocks at these kids and he's told them firmly, he will never do that again. He will pay the consequences and, and whatever. So he took me down into the basement. That was our place for getting shot. He saw, you know, he had all these World War II metaphors. You're going to face the firing squad. He took me down there, wooden spoon in hand, and the, the beating began. And I'm screaming and crying. And my brain is so confused because I don't even know what I've done wrong. All I've done is protected my brother. Like, I didn't try to hit the kids. I didn't even get near them. I just wanted them to back off, man. And in the meantime, I'm taking this beating, and, I'm, and I, I don't know what's going on. And my... Um, my brother comes down the stairs and, uh, and he's crying. And my, my dad's looking at him, what are you crying about? And my brother says, stop, stop. Why? He was only trying to save me. He was only trying to protect me. And now my brother tells him the story. And at this point, my dad has shame wash over him. And he's like, I can't believe I didn't listen to you and what have you. And then where it gets anchored in even worse, and I've got goosebumps. I've, you know, I, I, I've only told the story a couple of times. So it's not like, you know, but anyway, um, I, uh, I, um, over the next several years, my dad, you know, sobered up and he got his way into AA. And then what would happen is I would go to meetings with him sometimes. And he would often talk about being a parent and he would talk about 
the experience. And he would tell this story, but he would tell it from the perspective of what a hero I was, how I stood up for my brother and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I had this wiring in me, this horrible being punished for doing the right thing and then being praised for doing it later and all this stuff. And, and John unpacks all this stuff from me. And, and, then he, and then he guided me through a really, really great exercise of going back in time and talking to my father and, and telling him what I wish I could have said that day and saying back to me what I wish he had said to me that day. And you know what's really crazy is by working with a professional, by getting the help that I needed, now when that kind of stuff has happened to me, I still see it. I still don't like it, but I do not become irrational about it. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm all for getting the coaching you need. And, you know, so my, my view is this, if you've got buttons or triggers, if they're light ones, face them head on, jump right in. If they're heavier, get the help you need. And then, you know, grab somebody's hand who can hold you through the process and then push the damn button and exercise that, you know, get it out and then, and then live life limitless, unfuckwithable, you know, live life where not every little thing can bother you and get to you all the time. Yeah. I think that's the power. I love, I love you use the word unfuckwithable. Um, that's where the control is, right? When you can, when you can recognize your triggers and recognize your buttons and yeah, not always are you not going to instantly react, but the, every, with every time the, 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 like with practice makes perfect, right? Every time where you can actually take the time to respond rather than react and to, to consider what's, what's making you be like this. And like you say, get, get a coach, get someone who can see you and can, can clear the mess and help guide you through that process. Like the, that's, I love it. Cause that is where the, the quantum growth comes, right? When you can bust through the other side of that, for some reason, when you were talking about grab your hand and jump for me, I had this this visualization of you're at the, you're sitting on the edge of the plane, ready to skydive. And it's like, okay, ready? We're going to face this fear. Let's go. <laughs> it's like, and the elation and the, the freedom of once you've busted that. And, and you I know, Jade, and you know this, I mean, there's a good percentage of people that the first thing they say when they hit the ground is let's go again. And my, and, my and partner, so much of our life, it's like that. My partner jumped last week, absolutely deathly afraid of heights, like shitting himself, did it because he was basically scared he was getting bullied to do it. And just, he was like, I just don't want to do it. And then as soon as he hit the ground, he's like, I'll go again with you. Yeah. And, and, and you know, there, there's so much freedom on the other side of those breakthroughs. You know, there's so much freedom on, on, on you know, look, basically everything we want is on the other side of some discomfort or fear. Everything we want is on the other side of discomfort or fear. You know, you started this podcast and you were talking about resiliency and, um, and uh, it's funny because people often ask me about resiliency because I've been through a bunch of stuff and I don't think of myself as like so particularly resilient. But then of course, if I look back at the life that I've lived and the things that I've encountered and I, you know, I had a friend recently ask me to do him a favor and, uh, and I had a lot of stuff going on. So I couldn't get back to him right away. And it was not a big, big favor. It was just lend some money, whatever. And he wrote back to me and he goes, I need an answer. I can't live with this level of uncertainty. <laughs> so I just picked up the phone and I busted out laughing. I go, this is the level of uncertainty you can't live with. Let me tell you about the uncertainty I'm living with right now. And I listed all the shit. And this is, by the way, six months into the pandemic, I run a live seminar business. Every event's been canceled. Who knows if I'm going to be in business six months later? Like I'm going through a divorce. I'm like, my life is like full on uncertainty. And, and then he goes, okay, that's a good point. <laughs> and, and, and you know, the truth of it is like, I, this is my silly metaphor. And maybe this is, this is a great way to kind of sign it off, but when you're playing video games 
all the bonus points and all the upgrades are at the toughest levels. If we pull back every time we get to the toughest level, we never, we don't, we never get there. We don't get the bonuses. And, and, you know, so we got to face life the same way. It gets tough. Then you just jump in and you, and you, and you deal with it and, and it will make you stronger for the next one. And, and one more thing about that. Imagine you're playing a video game and you try to survive. You try to break through level 10, but you didn't do the first nine levels. That's why people win lotteries and lose the money. There's a reason for the small stuff that you're facing today. And by the way, anybody who's listening, the stuff you're facing today may not seem small, but let me ask you something. Is the stuff that you faced eight years ago that didn't seem small, doesn't it look small now? So isn't it reasonable to assume that the stuff you're facing right now that looks so big will look small eight years from now? And that's because you'll be stronger. As Jim Rohn always said, don't ask for life to get easier, just ask for you to get stronger. Oh, there is the mic drop moment. Eric Edmees, thank you so, so very much. I, I know that there is people in the tribe are like, you didn't ask about public speaking. We didn't get to those things. There's so much available of you online. Where, where can people connect with you? Where do we, where do we send them to get more Eric? Do you have people watching live right now? No, we didn't stream live. <laughs> I got you. No, 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 no worries. Here's what I was going to say is that um, the best place oh, really, okay. like if you're interested in food and, and, and performance and, and cognition and, and, and emotion management and what have you, go to getwildfit.com. That's the best place to go. If you're interested in entrepreneurship and you want to build a business that allows you to live like royalty and, and, and really truly like live a fabulous, fabulous expression of yourself, go to businessfreedom.com. If you're interested in public speaking, I used to be terrified of it like you wouldn't believe. And so I created speakernation.com to teach people public speaking skills and how to create digital products to create you know, personal emancipation. And then on a personal basis, if you ever just want to throw a note out or ask a question or what have you, I manage my own Instagram and I really do my very best to answer people who write to me. So if you go to at Eric Edmeets, you can connect with me there. Amazing. We'll put all of the links in the show notes as always. I think this actually did stream out to one channel. So uh, if you are online, make sure you head over, give Eric a follow now on Instagram. You will not be sorry. I feel very humbled and I'm very grateful that you shared so openly and so vulnerably. And I do count you as a dear friend. I wanted to introduce you that way at the beginning. I thought, is that weird? Cause we don't see each other that often, but I think every time we connect, I get personal growth, but I also know that I get 100% authentic and real Eric, and I've got goosebumps. So I'm going to say thank you very much, everyone. As always, if you feel like you've had one tiny morsel of insight or inspiration from this podcast today, or you know someone else that should listen to it, make sure that you hit the share button wherever you're watching and distribute it to the rest of your network. We're out. Thanks, guys. See you on the flip side. Hey there, Barrel Chasing business owners. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. What would be amazing and allow us to reach as many business owners just like you would be if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you feel like you got any entertainment or any value out of today, if you could pop on over, that would mean the world to us. See you on the next show.